the evolution of startups and mentoring the mentor. An interview with a pioneer. I'm Tanya Hall and joining me is Brad Feld, partner at Foundry Group and co-founder of Techstars. Welcome, Brad. Thanks, Tanya. Good to see you. Good to see you again. So for those people who may not be aware of who you are, give us a brief introduction to what Foundry Group does and your background. Sure. Uh, Foundry Group's a venture capital firm based in Boulder, Colorado. We invest in early stage tech and internet related companies. We also invest about 30% of our funds in other early stage venture funds. Uh, we've got about roughly 30 or so uh, funds that all around the United States uh, that make similar investments to us, but also other ones. Uh, Foundry has been around since 2007. Uh, total, we have about $3 billion under management. There's six partners and the six of us work on everything together. Um, I also co-founded Techstars, which is a, a network that helps entrepreneurs succeed that's global. Uh, we currently make about 500 investments a year through Techstars, through the various uh, accelerator programs that we run all over the world. Um, I think Techstars today has about 2,000 active companies, uh, again, growing at about 500 per year. Um, I got here uh, through a journey that included being a founder of a company in the late 1980s. Uh, I sold that to a public company in 1993. Uh, I took most of the money that I made from that sale and invested in about 40 startups, uh, internet and tech-related companies between 1994 and 96, and sort of accidentally found myself in 1997 co-founding a venture fund uh, called Mobius Venture Capital that was uh, originally called SoftBank Technology Ventures. It was affiliated with SoftBank. Um, my wife Amy and I moved to Colorado in, from Boston in 1995, and we've lived here since and plan to live here for the duration. And with my partners, I've always invested all around the U.S., uh, even though we're based in Boulder. That's a pretty pretty good description of kind of a broad description. I want to I want to talk about TechStars, but before we do, I want to talk about your work as a um, as an investor. And you've been investing for a long time. You talked about Founder Group uh, being established in 2007. Let's let's talk with the about the Founder Group. Since 2007 to today, a lot has happened uh, with uh, tech startups and the technology industry as a whole. How has your practice changed? since 2007 to today? Like, what have you learned over those, those years? Well, in 2007, if you, if you can time travel back uh, to then, uh, the venture capital community was still uh, in pretty, pretty dire straits or lots of distress as a function of the collapse of the internet bubble. And it was also the very beginning of the financial crisis. So there, are, there were a number of different vectors in that time period that made the investing side of the equation pretty scarce. There weren't a lot of, I mean, there were some, but there weren't a lot of active investors and certainly not that many making new investments. Um, on the entrepreneur side, interestingly, while entrepreneurship was also still conceptually in the dumps, there were a number of companies that were being started in the uh, sort of 2004, 2005, 2006 timeframe. And, you know, companies today that we think about as household names like uh, uh, Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn, and these were all companies started in that time frame. It was the emergence of something that was called, again, for the people that can time travel back, Web 2.0. Um, but there was still in 2007 a very, very big overhang from the collapse of the internet and the telecom bubble, and a lot of skepticism about entrepreneurship, company creation, 
And there's a lot of opacity around how it worked. It wasn't really clear to a lot of people what and how to do it. Uh, finally, even going to about 2010, 2011, there was this view that you had to be in the Bay Area or maybe in Boston or maybe in New York or else there was no point in trying to start a company. Uh, whereas today, I think it's widely understood that there's huge opportunities to create startups all over the world. And so it was against that backdrop that four of us started Foundry Group in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, it took us about a year to raise that first fund. Uh, it was a $225 million fund. And I would say there was a lot of different things that were challenging in that time frame when we went to raise the fund. There was a lot of investors in funds like ours who basically just thought you couldn't make money in venture capital and it wasn't worth doing. And that's obviously very different today than it was even 12 years ago. There were a lot of people who were very skeptical that you could build a national firm from Boulder, Colorado. And the idea that we were in Boulder versus being in the Bay Area was something that many, many people couldn't understand, you know, not only how it could work, but why it would be an advantage. Um, in addition, you know, there was still this power around entrepreneurship in the sense that, uh, yeah, there's some companies getting funded, but versus what we have today is this sort of Cambrian explosion of both startups and funds all over the world. So it was, you know, even though it was only 12 years ago, it was a very different time. And from that, you know, 2007, we wandered right into 2008, 2009, a global financial crisis. And the last time I checked, uh, when I review what was going on then, is a lot of people thought that, you know, all of society was going to collapse, uh, that every bank would be nationalized, that money wouldn't work anymore, that you'd go to the ATM machine, you couldn't get money out of it. And, you know, a lot of people lost a lot of economic value in the stock market. So people who used to be high net worth angel investors now were less net worth, not angel investors. Um, and, you know, that, that sort of carried on 2008, 2009, maybe even into 2010, um, before people started talking about innovation and entrepreneurship as being uh, an important sort of way out of this correction that had occurred. You mentioned um, people thought that you had needed to be in Silicon Valley to, to be a startup and you needed to be where, you know, all the action was happening. I've heard you say, you know, Silicon Valley has been in the making, you know, as a, as an incubator for tech startups for, for over a hundred years, maybe 120 years. Um, so what does it take to, to build a community around helping entrepreneurs and helping startups? I mean, can, can anybody do that? Can any community do that um, besides Boulder? Yeah, I have a very deeply held belief that you can create a vibrant startup community anywhere in the world. And more importantly, I think every city uh, of any scale, certainly any city more than 25,000 people, but I think really of any scale uh, needs to have entrepreneurship and innovation as a component of it. And the startup community is the container for that entrepreneurship and innovation. And it's especially true. Boulder's only 100,000 people. Like 100,000 people that startup community becomes a very powerful part of the engine of the community. It's not the only thing. You need lots of other things around your community beyond just the startup community or your city beyond just the startup community. But importantly, in the absence of that startup community, your city uh, is going to stall out over time. It doesn't have sort of this fresh engine of innovation, new people, new ways of thinking, new company creation, next generation of opportunity. Um, in 2012, I wrote a book called Startup Communities, and in that book, uh, I made the assertion that you know, every, every city in the world should have a startup community and could create one. And I 
uh, I called my principles the Boulder Thesis. So I, I came up with this idea that says you have to have four principles uh, to build a startup community somewhere. The first is that you have to have a critical mass of leaders who are entrepreneurs. Um, the startup community can't be created by government, by the university, by nonprofits, by big companies. There have to be entrepreneurs who are willing to play leadership roles um, in building that startup community. All the other participants are important, but in the absence of that critical mass of leaders who are entrepreneurs, you won't make progress. So that's the first one. The second uh, principle is that you have to have a very long-term view. You just mentioned, you know, 100 years of Silicon Valley. My view is you have to have at least a 20-year forward view. And when I press people on it, I say 20 years from today. So I've been lived in Boulder for 25 years. And I'm not working on, you know, I'm done. I was done five years ago. I'm now working on years 25 to 45. So it's this idea that you're really looking forward uh, with a long-term lens. The third is that you have to be inclusive of anyone who wants to engage in the startup community, uh, independent of who they are, what their beliefs are, what their gender is, what their ethnicity, what their educational background, where they came from, their level of experience. Just this notion of, inclusive, of, of inclusivity, of engaging anyone who wants to be part of the startup community can become part of the startup community. Interestingly, there's no hierarchy in it, right? There's generally not a, a CEO of the, uh, you know, uh, anywhere startup community. The, uh, the Boise startup community, your neighbors down the road don't have a CEO. They don't have a vice president of education, right? They don't have a, uh, a VP of marketing. Um, and so this notion of letting anybody who wants to get involved uh, be involved any way they want is important. And then the fourth principle is you have to have activities and events that fully engage everybody in the act of entrepreneurship. So cocktail parties, networking events, award ceremonies, but, you know, the kind of trappings I think a lot of times that people celebrate entrepreneurship is not enough. You actually have to have accelerators. You have to have startup weekends. You have to have startup weeks. You have to have lots and lots of meetups. And your goal should be that you supersaturate your community with activity so that any one individual can't participate in everything. There's just so much going on all the time that you, you have to figure out what you want to actually engage with. So that was the book I wrote in 2012. At the time, the phrase startup communities didn't exist. Um, today, it's a phrase that's widely used across the world. And I have a new book coming out uh, with a co-author, a guy named Ian Hathaway, at the end of this year called Startup Community Way, which for those of you that are fans of Eric Reese, is an homage to Eric's second book, which was called The Lean Startup Way. And um, in Startup Community Way, we actually use the theory of complex adaptive systems to describe how a startup community works. So uh, if, you, if you don't know anything about complexity theory, uh, you'll learn a lot from the book. If you know about complexity theory, we're applying that to the, the generative phenomena of how a startup community builds and evolves and grows over a long period of time. You mentioned when you started Founder Group, when you founded Founder Group, that um, you really didn't have you know, the Facebooks, you certainly didn't have a lot of the social media presence that you have today at that time. And so you've got some big giants out there. Should the big tech companies play some sort of role in helping incubate startup communities outside of Silicon Valley? I mean, are they already doing that or, or should they even have a role doing that? Well, some of them do and some of them do it really, really well. I think Google uh, does an extraordinary job of it. If you look at Google for Entrepreneurs, which um, was originally started by uh, Mary Grove, um, uh, another shameless plug, if, uh, 
uh, you're interested in learning more about this, uh, David Cohen, who's the CEO, co-CEO of Techstars and I have a podcast that we've just started doing a couple of months ago called Give First. Um, and I believe episode four is with Mary, uh, who's now at Revolution Partners, which she's one of the partners in their Rise of the Rest Fund, which is a seed fund that invests in companies outside of the coasts uh, in the U.S. And she was the founder of Google for Entrepreneurs and was incredibly involved and really got Google very involved globally uh, in helping fund, nurture, and develop startup communities. And in many cases, through what I would consider to be a philanthropic activity rather than economic activity, where, you know, it, sure, it benefited Google from the perspective of building a very broad network, you know, people who had affinity for Google, but they did it by engaging in places and providing capital and resources in places versus just saying, hi, we're here, will you buy our product, Mr. Startup Community or Mrs. Startup Community? I think other companies over the years have done a good job of that. Microsoft has had a number of initiatives, uh, I think, that have been quite effective. Amazon, uh, especially around AWS, has been extremely involved and engaged. You have startups like uh, that are now pretty large companies like SendGrid, which was a Techstars company that went public and was recently acquired by Twilio, uh, that have been very, very involved broadly across uh, uh, the globe in terms of it. So there's lots and lots of different ways to engage. Um, you also see service providers to the entrepreneurial ecosystem that are quite effective at this. On a, on a global basis. Uh, two that are worth mentioning would include Cooley, uh, which is a law firm uh, that has a global footprint that's done a very, very good job, not just of engaging and showing up and saying, hi, we should be your lawyer, but actually, and not just writing checks for events to get their logos on things, but actually engaging really with the entrepreneurs in a mentoring way, a supporting way. Um, Silicon Valley Bank is another example uh, of an organization I think that's done an extraordinary job at it. So it's there is a place and a very important place for large companies, whether they're tech companies or other. I think this is the key back to something I said earlier, though. Those companies can't be the leaders. Um, the entrepreneurs have to be the leaders. And it's interesting within that, members of those large companies can play leadership roles. So when Mary was at Google, Mary Grove was at Google, she played a leadership role uh, in the various startup communities that she touched. But Google itself, was a supporter or what I term a feeder of the startup community development versus a leader where they're trying to organize it, make it googly and make it all look like Google. No, no, no. They showed up and said, hey, we're here to be part of what's happening in your city rather than here's how you do it. You must do it the way we do it. You've been investing, as you pointed out, many companies. In fact, I would say the vast majority of, of companies that come out of Silicon Valley, you've got a pretty good uh, stronghold on, on helping those companies understand how to make their business grow. And you've done a great job. So what have you learned? What, where, what has, how have you changed in your approach since the beginning to today? Well, we have a very broad investment footprint because not only you know, are we investing in companies directly, and about a, a third of our investments are in Colorado, about a third are in the Bay Area, and a third are the rest of the country. Um, because we're invested in all these other venture funds, we have small positions through those venture funds uh, in thousands of companies, right? You know, just Techstars by itself, we're investors in 2,000 companies. So we have very, very broad exposure uh, to, uh, to companies and through, through our investment. I would say we, when I started investing in the mid 90s as an angel investor, uh, I was focused on two things. I was focused on uh, the founders, and I was focused on the product. 
And I, I approached it from the standpoint of, are these founders put on this planet to work on this product? And is this a product that I have affinity for? I don't have to be a user of it, but you know, does it capture me? And there are a lot of products that captured me that I would never be a user of that, you know, didn't really actually make sense to me in terms of what they were doing, but the linkage between the founders and the products, the product itself really, really captured me through my course of investing. And all of that was within the internet universe, by the way. So I was constrained by that. I wasn't investing in all kinds of random different things. Um, as I've wound the clock forward over the years, I would say those two principles still dominate, even though I've gone through lots and lots of different iterations. Um, and I've added a third to it. So I'm looking for entrepreneurs who are obsessed about what they're doing, right? The, the line I used is how I define obsession. They were put on planet earth to work on this problem. Passionate is not the word I use. I think that passionate's way overrated in the context of entrepreneurship. Passion is super easy to fake. Um, extroverts are great at being passionate. Introverts generally are not. Um, but if you're obsessive, it's or, you know, obsessed about the thing you're doing, that's usually identifiable. The second is this idea of having affinity for what the product is. Um, and the affinity often is linked to domain expertise, um, but it's also linked to this idea that you have to actually care about the product because most companies go through big ups and downs. And you know, when things are really difficult and when you know, the shit has really hit the fan in a company, as an investor, if you don't really care about the product, it's hard to stay in it at the level that you need to. And then the third for me is that the founders uh, want us to be investors as much as we want to be investors. It has to be a two-way uh, want. There's lots and lots of companies and lots of founders you know, we're, we're, we were potentially interesting to them, but we were just one of many sources of capital. Um, and if they just viewed us as one of many sources of capital, they didn't really care about us as individuals um, versus founders who might have had many options, but they actually looked at us as the right option for them at that moment in time. So it's both directions. It's not just that we really want to be an investor. They have to really want us to be an investor as well. Looking back, what, what would you consider maybe... A mistake, maybe, maybe, maybe something that you would have changed. Uh, and how have you learned from that? I made an extraordinarily long list of mistakes. Um, you know, the, the the most heartbreaking ones usually are, are are snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, right? Situations where, you know, you turn down an acquisition offer for a company that you should have taken, and several years later, the company's worth a lot less or they're not working, or a situation where you know you think you have a product that's working in a market that's scaling so you pile a bunch of money into the company and it turns out that you've just got some fundamental stuff in the business that's, that's not set up correctly um, or cases where you know you have a great success with a particular product and you decide to sort of move your business in that direction and then you miss the value of, of what you're actually doing and it turns out that that product that you had some success with, whether it was early or sustained, was really a chimera. It, it disappeared. It didn't, it didn't last. Um, as an investor, you know, can, I continue to make uh, lots of mistakes in, uh, around people. I think less than I used to. Um, but, you know, as an investor, the relationship with the founders and the relationship with the CEO, or whether they're the founder or not, is critical. And it's not that there's a good founder and a bad founder or a good CEO or a bad CEO. Um, there's lots of, everybody has strengths and weaknesses. Uh, what's key is value alignment and ability to communicate. 
And so you have to share the same kind of fundamental approach to things. You can disagree on lots of stuff. You can argue about tons of shit, but you have to have the same fundamental sort of core norms. And at the same time, you have to have a way to communicate with each other, especially when you disagree uh, that's constructive and moves things forward. An example of that, I'll give two personal ones. Um, I, I don't have a temper. I really don't get angry very uh, very easily. Maybe once or twice a year I'll lose my temper. Occasionally I'm grumpy because I'm having a shitty day. That happens. But, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty, pretty happy-go-lucky uh, person most of the time in terms of my attitude when I'm approaching things, even situations that are incredibly stressful. I tend to be calm and measured uh, and not sort of fury and emotional. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't work well with people who have hot, hot tempers and are emotional, but in a lot of those situations, you struggle with being able to t communicate with each other. You talk past each other. Um, you know, if you're not forceful enough, the other person doesn't hear you. Um, on one side, on the other side, uh, when you're not riled up, sometimes people who get riled up don't actually think you're paying attention or engaged. So understanding the relationship between the people uh, is really key. Um, the other thing that, that happens uh, on, on the people front, just in terms of mistakes, um, as an investor, is this sort of idea of responsibility. And there's a bunch of cliches around this in the venture business, like, you know, the success is the success of the founders and the failure is the failure of everybody around the board table, which includes the entrepreneurs. There's a lot of people, especially first-time entrepreneurs, who struggle a lot with allocation of blame. And, you know, well, this didn't work because of that other thing, or this didn't work because this person did this, or this other company did this thing. And really, um, I mean, startups are an endless effort not to die. And if you come at it from that frame of reference, like your goal as a startup is not to die, because that's what the whole world is conspiring, including kind of probably even your team is conspiring, whether they realize it or not, to kill the business based on what they're doing. Not consciously, but that's just the nature of it. And so blaming anybody for anything that goes wrong is just not that useful when you're in this, in this, uh, in this startup world. And that's another place where you know, we invested in people and you sort of find them struggling between their own hubris, their own arrogance, their own imposter syndrome, uh, whatever. No, no attribution about what the list is, but some, some set of characteristics. And then it instantiates as it's other people's problem versus theirs. And I try really hard not to do that as an investor. I'm sure I screw that up. And there's plenty of times where I say, gosh, that company screwed us or that person was bad or whatever. It's not about that. It's about, okay, here's where we are. What do we do? And, you know, it's, it's not looking back and saying, oh, that happened to us. It's like, here is literally where you are right now. What's the path forward? Mentorship has really become a huge part of your DNA. Techstars has been a huge success. Um, who, on a personal level, who was who a mentor to you when you were growing up? What, what person comes to mind that actually was an example for you that you still think of today as somebody who helped mold you into the person you are at today? I'll reel off a couple. Um, my dad... Uh, from very early on, and especially when I was a teenager and became interested in computers, um, he had a sense early on that I'd be interested in entrepreneurship, and so he got me connected as a teenager with several of his patients who were founders of businesses in the 80s, 
And so I got exposed to that. I actually got a job uh, as a senior in high school for uh, a husband and wife co-founder of a company. It was the two of them and me uh, that came from that. So my dad played a key role. Uh, my uncle, my dad's brother, Charlie, also played a key role. He was a, uh, a VP of, of IT, became a CIO is the line, the title people would use. I think back when I was a kid, he was like director of MIS, Management Information Systems, something like that, at Frito-Lay. And uh, my first exposure to computers when I was uh, 11 or 12 came through through Charlie and through him bringing me to a Frito-Lay data center and you know letting me sit in front of a computer terminal connected to a mainframe somewhere and play, uh, play with a language called APL. And, you know, even in college, he nurtured me when he would come to Boston where I was in school and do meetings at Lotus or DEC. Um, he would always invite me um, to come and sit with him and with the CEOs of these companies and senior leaders of the companies that he was a big customer of as he worked through those relationships. Um, I had a, in school, I had a, 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 an advisor when I was, uh, I, I didn't get a PhD, but I went through a PhD program for a number of years. My doctoral advisor was a guy named Eric Von Hippel. Um, incredibly, incredibly helpful mentor to me. And one of the big things that Eric uh, helped me sort of think about, and it's been a core part of my entrepreneurial investing philosophy, is this idea that innovation comes from users, not manufacturers. Um, and so previously in the 50s and 60s, there was this notion that all of the innovation came from these gigantic, you know, GE labs, AT&T labs, Bell labs, whatever they were called, uh, GE labs. And uh, Eric's heretical view in the 1970s was that's wrong. The users of these products are the ones that are going to figure out the innovation. And anybody who's involved in open source is a prime example of that today because open source is all around users generating the innovation. Um, and then uh, two others quickly um, uh, at um, my first company, the two guys that bought my company, Jerry Pock and Len Fassler, taught me how to essentially both be a much, much better leader, but also how to buy companies and invest in companies. And Len, uh, who's 88 and still one of my closest friends, continues to be an incredibly close uh, and impactful mentor on my own thinking about business, culturally how I approach uh, business. And then the last person probably I put on the list is Ron Fisher, who's vice chairman of SoftBank. Um, the first venture fund I was part of was sponsored by SoftBank, and Ron was the SoftBank executive who was responsible for it. And um, I, 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 I had lots of ups and downs with that experience, but I just learned an incredible amount from Ron, not just about how he thought about business and deals, but how he comported himself, how he behaved and related across in this very chaotic, very fast growing, very complicated universe. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of situations that I've been where, uh, you know, I can, I can feel either him or Len sort of their, uh, their, their behavioral norms sort of flowing through me as, as I deal with a situation that's difficult. Brad Feld, there's so much we could talk to you about. Uh, you've certainly got a plethora of experience in investing, mentorship, and so much more. If somebody wants to check out maybe the latest copy of your book, maybe they want to check out your podcast, which by the way is you're off to an amazing start. You've done a great job. If somebody wants to follow that, maybe get your book coming out, what's the best way to connect with you, Brad? Couple of couple of things. Um, thanks for the words on the podcast. We've now, I think we've released five of them. We've recorded about 10. And I think it's going to take us 20 or 30 before we sort of totally get comfortable in our podcasting skin. I'm doing with David, uh, David Cohen. But it's interesting as we, you know, I don't listen to the edits. I listen to them after they're finally edited. And you can feel like each one is getting 
they're different because we don't really have a rhythm and then all of a sudden you start to have a rhythm and then you evolve the rhythm of how you do it. So uh, I have a lot of respect, Tanya, for your interviewing skills because it's a different, it's different to be on the receiving side of the interview than the giving side. Um, in terms of contacting me, uh, I blog on not every, but almost every day at felt.com. Um, uh, email is brad at feld.com. I try to respond to all my email. My only request is start with the punchline. Think of somebody who gets 500 emails a day and actually tries to respond to them. So don't give me, you know, six paragraphs of stuff until you get to what you want me to focus on. Just focus me. Uh, and if I can help, I will. And if I can't, I'm very quick to say, don't have any idea how to be helpful. Um, Twitter's at Befeld, uh, and I broadcast tweet. I don't really interact with, with Twitter. So if you want to uh, engage with me, send me a note. Next time we'll pull Amy into this conversation as well. She is, uh, she is uh, today she is busy in DC at a bunch of stuff with the Nature Conservancy, which is an organization that we're both very involved in and that uh, she spends a, a good chunk of her time with these days. So I miss her, but uh, I'm sure there will be a point where we can drag her into the mix too. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Brad, and uh, appreciate your time. That's Brad Feld. You can find him just about anywhere. And you can find me and my interviews right here or go to tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.